0: Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This year marks the 25th anniversary of one of the most unforgettable moments of the 90s. Those old enough have a story about where they were on August 31st, 1997, when they heard the news. It was a shocking end to a fairy tale story that began 16 years earlier, when the world was first introduced to Shy Di, the soon-to-be wife of Prince Charles, the future King of England. This year, Princess Diana's absence was felt during the Queen's Jubilee celebrations, and her shadow loomed a few years ago when her son Prince Harry and his wife Meghan Markle were making news as they parted ways with the royal family. Like the former Princess of Wales, they too felt they weren't being protected by those closest to them. It's hard not to imagine how Diana, if she were alive, would have impacted those events. Today, we mark her passing by bringing you a special episode from Season 1 of History of the 90s. In it, we take a deep dive at how she became England's Rose. This is Princess Diana and the Paparazzi. Shortly after midnight on August 31st, 1997, Princess Diana and Dodi Al-Fayed had just finished a late-night dinner at the Hotel Ritz in Paris when they began planning how to exit the building. Dozens of photographers had gathered outside the Ritz while the couple dined. Eventually, it was decided Diana and Dodi would slip out the back door with bodyguard Trevor Reese Jones and jump in a black Mercedes driven by Henri Paul, who was the acting head of security at the Ritz. As the Mercedes pulled away, photographers were ready. The ploy hadn't worked. They began to follow Diana and Dodie, some in cars, others on the backs of motorcycles. Their long lens cameras ready to snap pictures of the princess and her new boyfriend. The chase was on, through darkened Paris streets, speeds reaching 110 kilometers per hour. A dangerous game of cat and mouse. But it was about to become clear, this wasn't a game. Lives were on the line. Just minutes after leaving the hotel, the people's princess, the mother of a future king, was dead, along with her boyfriend and driver. The crash changed the course of history and brought about a reckoning with the invasive photographers known as the paparazzi. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we're looking back at the troubled relationship between Princess Diana and the paparazzi. From the moment Lady Diana Spencer began dating Prince Charles, she was a target of royal photographers and the paparazzi. Her very first encounter with a photographer seemed to set the tone for the controversial and difficult relationship that would develop over the coming years, and ultimately end with her tragic death. In September 1980, Arthur Edwards, the royal photographer for the British tabloid newspaper, The Sun, found out that Diana worked at a preschool in London. He knocked on doors until he found the right school and then asked for permission to photograph Diana. Inexperienced and unprepared, 19-year-old Diana agreed and with the school's permission, went to a nearby park with a couple of young students where they posed for Edwards. With a child on each hip, Diana wearing a sweater vest over a blouse and a long skirt and flats, looks unsmiling at the camera. Her hair styled in that signature shag cut. She was a picture of young innocence. Edwards has said what happened next wasn't planned. The sun came out from behind a cloud and shone through Diana's sheer skirt, revealing a perfect outline of her legs. By now, other photographers had joined Edwards at the park. And the next day, a picture of Diana with a see-through skirt was splashed across the front page of British newspapers, with the headline, Charlie's Girl. The photo is now iconic, and a documentary that aired on the Smithsonian Channel called Diana and the Paparazzi revealed that Diana was horrified by the shot of her in silhouette. She complained to Prince Charles that she didn't want to become known as the girlfriend with no petticoat. Sadly, this was just the beginning of Diana's troubles with the photographers who stalked her every move. Before we dig into that, let's take a step back and look at the origins of the paparazzi. If you're like me, the paparazzi wasn't something you spent a lot of time thinking about until Princess Diana died. But it is something that existed long before that fateful night. In the 1950s, a group of press photographers began to target movie stars on the streets of Rome, hoping to snap candid images of celebrities like Ava Gardner, Sophia Loren, and Brigitte Bardot. Up until then, it was more common for the media to use staged photos of movie stars that were released by their studios. But magazines were prepared to pay big bucks for candid pictures, especially those that put celebrities in, let's say, compromising positions. One of the first times that happened was in Rome in 1958, when a photographer snapped a picture of Egypt's King Farouk while he sat with two women, neither of whom were his wife. Farouk got into a scuffle with the photographer while another cameraman snapped even more photos of the chaotic scene. This encounter gave birth to a new type of photographer. But they weren't known as the paparazzi, at least not yet. It's believed that the first time the term was used was in a 1960 movie by Italian filmmaker Federico Fellini called La Dolce Vida. Hai
1: paura dei discorsi seri allora?
0: No.
2: But tu
1: non li O li A mi porti?
0: The movie about Rome's self-indulgent high society and the aggressive photographers that followed them around featured a character named Paparazzo. It's believed a screenwriter working on the film saw the name in an old book he had read and worked it into the screenplay of La Dolce Vita. Fellini kept it in, telling Time Magazine that the name reminded him of a buzzing insect, hovering, darting, stinging. After the movie was released, Paparazzo became the plural paparazzi, the de facto name used for the groups of freelance photographers prowling the streets of Rome, who were growing more and more aggressive, often provoking their subjects for a reaction. You see, they learned that a straight shot of a star would sell for about $500, but one of a furious celebrity could earn thousands of dollars. In those days, cameras had a large flash that took ages to recharge, so photographers usually had just one chance to get their picture. To make sure they didn't blow it, they got their assistants to drive them around on Vespas so they could quickly swoop in for a shot. By the 1960s, the term paparazzi broke into the mainstream. In 1961, an article in Time Magazine explained the term to its readers, comparing the paparazzi to street walkers because they cling to their place in society. The article explained, no one is safe from them, not even royalty. And the British royalty was certainly no exception. And this became increasingly true by the end of the 1960s when Britain saw a major shift in the media landscape. (laughs) Rupert Murdoch entered the British newspaper industry by purchasing the failing newspaper, The Sun, in 1969. Murdoch understood that The Sun couldn't really compete with other papers when it came to reporting the news, So he made the decision to focus on the lives of TV and movie stars, along with other celebrities, including members of the royal family. That's when the content of his papers shifted towards a fascination with the sex and love lives of the rich and famous. Other papers soon followed The Sun's lead, including the News of the World. These tabloid newspapers, known as Red Tops, developed into a staple in British society and created a huge demand for paparazzi shots. By the time Diana emerged on the scene in the 80s, the candid celebrity photograph was already a vital part of print media in the UK. Before Queen Elizabeth's eldest son, Charles, Prince of Wales and heir to the throne, began dating Lady Diana Spencer, he was considered one of the world's most eligible bachelors. And at the age of 32, royal watchers were growing impatient, wondering when Charles might settle down and begin producing the next generation of heirs. But Charles didn't appear to be in a hurry to tie the knot. He famously said, I've fallen in love with all sorts of girls and I fully intend to go on doing so. So when word leaked that Charles was dating a pretty young woman by the name of Diana, it's really no surprise that the media and public were immediately interested in knowing more about the prince's potential love interest. Diana was everything the nation hoped for. A shy teenager with huge eyes and a sweet smile. Newspapers described her as a demure English rose, manner born, who blushed and giggled when spoken to. She was the perfect heroine for a fairy tale. The media's interest quickly became a fascination, bordering on obsession. The couple's every move was splashed in the British press, with rampant speculation about whether they would get married. The media attention was so intense that the Queen took the rare move of complaining about the news reports. Things had come to a head during the New Year's holiday when reporters and photographers on the lookout for Lady Diana hounded the royal family while they vacationed at the Sandringham Estate in Norfolk, England. Neither the Queen nor any other members of the family could leave the grounds without running into the media. It was like nothing they had ever experienced before and it was making the Queen increasingly angry. And it appeared to upset Prince Charles, too, who delivered a special message to editors on Fleet Street, Britain's newspaper wrote. At the end of a morning pheasant shoot, Prince Charles left the Queen's side to approach a group of about a dozen photographers to wish them a Happy New Year. And then he added, To your editors, I wish a particularly nasty one. It seemed like nothing was off-limits in the coverage of Diana. News reports even included information about whether or not she was a virgin. One paper wrote, She is a virgin and seen to be one. She is untarnished, unblemished. When the couple was dating, Diana lived in a flat with three roommates in South Kensington. After the paparazzi discovered the location, a few photographers rented a flat next door, which allowed them to look into Diana's bedroom with binoculars. Mark Karloff is a freelance photographer who works in Los Angeles snapping candid pics of celebrities. He considers that kind of invasive behavior totally off limits.
2: Obviously privacy is privacy. And you have to get to kind of a moral a moral ground in you know in your own head to be able to sit and look in somebody's window and wait for something like that to happen to try and get a photo of something scandalous through a window that's obviously a private moment and To be able to do that year after year after year, these guys over there, obviously there was a lot of money in it. So there's their motivation right there. But, you know, uh, just taking it too far.
0: Diana described the situation in audio tapes she recorded in 1991 for biographer Andrew Morton. Portions of the tapes can be heard in the documentary Diana in Her Own Words. Diana described one time when her roommates helped her sneak out unnoticed by the media when she was going to visit Charles. She said, They took my sheets off the bed and I got out of the kitchen window, which is on the side street, with a suitcase. I did it that way round. Diana described the media as unbearable, following her every move, but despite the intrusion, Diana said she was constantly polite, constantly civil, never rude, and she never shouted. But behind closed doors, it was a different story. Diana said, I cried like a baby to the four walls. I just couldn't cope with it. I cried because I got no support from Charles and no support from the Palace press office. They just said, you're on your own. So I thought, fine. In the final weeks before their engagement was announced, things got so intense that Diana fled to Australia with her mother for a break from the media circus. When the couple's engagement was announced on February 24th, 1981, there was an outpouring of excitement. It seemed like the entire world was infatuated with the couple in what seemed like a fairy tale romance. Despite Charles' awkward response when an interviewer questioned them about their feelings for each other.
1: And I suppose in love. Of course. <laughs> Whatever in love means. So.
0: Less than a week after their engagement was announced, Diana made her first royal appearance at a fundraising event for the Royal Opera House. Diana drew gasps and cheers from the crowd when she emerged in a strapless bare-shoulder gown made of black silk taffeta. The Sun newspaper called her Diana the Dazzler, but they should have called her Diana the Trendsetter because soon women around England were imitating her style looking to buy copies of just about everything she wore. Young women also wanted to copy Diana's haircut. Stylists reported a stampede of customers demanding the lady dye cut. And not just in the UK, the short layered cut was popular in salons around the world. When Prince Charles and Diana married on July 29, 1981, in front of royalty, heads of state, and some 2,700 guests, the elaborate wedding was watched on television by 750 million people. It was the biggest royal occasion since the Queen's coronation in 1953, and it was the first marriage of a Prince of Wales since 1863. But the real star of the show, in a wedding dress with a 25-foot train, was Diana, who after the wedding would be referred to as the Princess of Wales. Photographer Mark Karloff says that in taking on the role as the future queen, Diana had also committed to a life under the spotlight.
2: The royals are just a, a magnet for gossip, drama, photography, news, media, everything.
0: And while royal watching had always been a preoccupation in Britain, the arrival of Diana marked the beginning of a new era. The public adored her. They loved her beauty, her charisma, and her warmth. She gave them an adorable heir, William, in June 1982, and a spare, Harry, in September 1984. But through it all, Diana was struggling to adjust to her life in the monarchy. When she married Charles, she was so young and really quite naive and emotionally fragile. And years later, it would also be revealed that through it all, she was struggling with bulimia. To say she was unprepared is a massive understatement, never mind the fact that her husband had an ongoing relationship with his ex girlfriend, Camilla. It was a lot, and mix in the constant glare of the paparazzi, and it really does sound quite unbearable. But during her first years as a royal princess diana was as fascinated with the press as they were with her and initially the tabloids were filled with praise for the princess she went on to grace every magazine cover and quickly became the most photographed woman in the world but over the years the relationship with the paparazzi and the tabloids changed as they became more and more invasive
2: diana i mean she was just kind of a free spirit she was kind of a she kind of did what she wanted and i think that just came with a lot of scandal because you know she wasn't one of those that was necessarily abiding by the whole royal code um kind of like Meghan markle now and uh, i I just think that kind of got her into trouble and and caused the media to just kind of question a lot that she did
0: At the height of the Diana craze in the 90s, even a grainy, candid photo of the princess could earn up to half a million dollars, which earned her a nickname among UK paparazzi. They called her the Princess of Sales. The paparazzi were at times ruthless getting those photos of Diana. They stuck their cameras right in her face, sometimes baiting her so that she would get angry and they could snap photos that would sell for more money. The paps came up with their own slang for photographing the princess. To take a number of pictures was to hose her down. They would also blitz her, target her, and whack her. While dozens and dozens of photographers would turn up at events attended by Diana, there was also a core group of photographers who did nothing but stalk Diana on a daily basis. It was their full-time job. They hung around in front of Kensington Palace, followed her on vacation in Switzerland or the Mediterranean, and waited for her as she made her way to and from the gym. Two of the photographers from that core group wrote a book together in 1997 called Dicing with Die, which was published about eight months before her death. In it, they described how Diana sometimes wheeled on them in tears or anger. The paparazzi coined a phrase for those outbursts calling them loon attacks, with Diana being the loon. And they weren't referring to the bird, they meant crazy. Photographer Glenn Harvey explained on the PBS TV show Frontline that they gave Diana the nickname loon because at times she seemed to be okay with being photographed and would even cooperate a bit, but then she would suddenly turn on them or start crying. He said it was a bit loony. In one famous incident, Diana lunged at a photographer outside a movie theater and yelled, you make my life hell. She had just attended the movie Jurassic Park with her sons, William and Harry. And when confronted by the paparazzi, she lost her patience. But it was very rare for the princess to lose her cool. And only once did she take legal action. In 1993, the Princess of Wales sued the Mirror Group newspapers after she was photographed by a hidden camera while working out at a West London gym. The gym's owner had set up a camera in the ceiling of the LA Fitness Club after Diana's security officers did a sweep of the building. He sold several photos to the Sunday Mirror, where they were published on the front page under the headline, Die Spy Sensation. The pictures show Diana dressed in a leotard and bike shorts, lying on a leg press machine. Princess Diana's decision to sue the newspaper, along with LA Fitness and the gym owner, marked a new approach by the royal family, which had traditionally resisted using the law to hit back. Something that's become more common since then. After a backlash from an angry public and some large advertisers threatened to boycott the publication, The mirror apologized to the princess and came to an undisclosed settlement out of court. LA Fitness also settled after apologizing, but the gym's owner, Bryce Taylor, initially refused to give up his profits. He defiantly said on TV, what was Princess Diana doing there in the first place if she didn't want to be seen? Finally, two years after the suit was launched, just before the case was about to go to court, Taylor apologized and gave up the $300,000 he had earned from the sale of the photos. Diana did what she could to discourage photographers from taking photos. She held a purse in front of her chest to prevent photos of her cleavage, and she was known to wear the same clothes and outfits, hoping this would make a picture of her less valuable. You've probably seen photos of a fit-looking Diana headed to the Chelsea Harbour Club gym in London in a big blue sweatshirt and bike shorts. Every time she went to work out, the media were camped outside the gym with their stepladders and cameras waiting for the perfect shot. To fool them, Diana began wearing the same sweatshirt to the gym every day. This way, it would look as though the papers were just republishing the same photos. The Navy sweatshirt, which featured the Flying Lady logo of Virgin Atlantic Airlines, was gifted to Princess Diana by Virgin Group founder Richard Branson. Diana eventually gifted the sweatshirt to her longtime personal trainer, Jenny Rivett, who in 2019 sold it at auction for more than $53,000. Rivett donated the money to a charity that helps girls in Malawi attend school, which she feels would have made Diana proud. Over the years, Diana got quite savvy when dealing with the media and paparazzi. She was known to cultivate reporters, flattering them and leaking choice bits of news. And later on, the media became her weapon of choice as she battled Charles during the final years of their unhappy marriage that included infidelity by both parties. First, she secretly cooperated with author Andrew Morton for the sensational biography, Diana, A True Story, which was published in 1992. It was always rumored that Diana had helped Morton with the book, but the author didn't confirm that until after her death. The book portrayed Diana as a deeply depressed young woman trapped in a loveless marriage, revealing she had attempted suicide five times and suffered from bulimia. The palace was furious, but the tactic worked for Diana. Shortly after the book was released, the queen allowed the couple to officially separate. Then, three years later, in 1995, tired of waiting for the Queen's permission to finalize a divorce, Diana took matters into her own hands again and granted a tell-all television interview with Martin Bashir on the BBC show Panorama. In the now infamous interview, Diana made public her battle with bulimia and the problems with her marriage to Charles.
1: Do you think Mrs. Parker Bowles was a factor in the breakdown of your marriage? Well, there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded.
0: She also spoke about what she called the daunting and phenomenal interest in her by the media. She said, I never know where a lens is going to be. A normal day would be followed by four cars. A normal day, I would come back to my car and find six freelance photographers jumping around me. I can't tolerate it because it's become abusive and harassment. It goes on and on and on and the story never changes. Recently, her son, Prince William, revealed in a documentary that he remembers photographers even spitting at his mother to try to provoke a reaction. But for Diana, the worst was yet to come. After the divorce was finalized in 1996 and Diana lost her Royal Highness title, the paparazzi's presence intensified. There was a renewed interest in what Diana would do now that she was free of her royal constraints. In particular, who would she become romantically involved with? While Diana and Charles were separated, she had a secret love affair with a handsome heart surgeon by the name of Haznet Khan. He wanted nothing to do with the media frenzy that surrounded Diana, so the two saw each other at home, and Diana even wore disguises when they went out in public. But convinced he could never live a normal life if they married, Khan broke up with Diana in July 1997. A short time later, Diana was spotted in the French Riviera with a possible new love interest, 42-year-old Dodi Al-Fayed, the son of billionaire businessman Mohamed Al-Fayed, who at the time owned Britain's Harrods department store. The paparazzi photographed Diana swimming, walking hand in hand with Dodi, and in one case caught the couple embracing on board his family's $32 million yacht. That photo in particular, which showed Dodi's hand on Diana's backside, was declared the photo of the summer by the magazine Paris Match. Even grainy photos of the couple sold for not just thousands of dollars, but hundreds of thousands of dollars. Initially, the couple didn't appear to dissuade the paparazzi from taking photos of their romantic vacation. Some believed it was Diana's way of announcing to the world that while her ex-husband may have found happiness with his old flame, Camilla Parker Bowles, she too was madly in love. It may have also been a jab at Hasnat Khan for dumping her. After spending 10 days in the French Riviera, Diana and Dodi arrived in Paris on Saturday, August 30th, 1997. They checked into the Imperial Suite at the Ritz Hotel, which at the time was owned by Dodi's father. Earlier in the day, she snuck a call to Richard Kay, a friend and journalist who covered the Royals for the Daily Mail, and she told him she had decided to radically change her life. Kay has revealed that she told him she was going to complete her obligations to her charities. And then around November, she was going to completely withdraw from her formal public life. She also called her boys who were on vacation with their father and grandmother, the Queen of England at Balmoral Castle in Scotland. The princes recalled in a 2017 documentary that they were playing with cousins when their mother called and were eager to rush off the phone to return to their activities, something they both deeply regret. Prince Harry said, "'If I'd known that that was the last time I'd speak to my mother, the things I would have said to her. Looking back on it now, it is incredibly hard.'" And Prince William agreed. He said, if I'd known what would happen, I wouldn't have been so blasé about it. But that phone call sticks in my mind quite heavily. Around 10 p.m., the couple went to the hotel's restaurant and ordered dinner. But Doty grew suspicious that photographers may be posing as restaurant patrons. So they moved their meal to the Imperial Suite. Just past midnight, the couple decided to leave the hotel and head to Dodi's Paris apartment. It has long been speculated that Doty planned to propose to Diana back at his apartment. He had, in fact, picked up a ring from a Paris jeweler earlier in the day, but no one will ever know if it was an engagement ring or just a token of his affection. By now, 30 or so paparazzi had gathered out front of the Ritz. So a plan was made for the couple, along with bodyguard Trevor Reese Jones, to exit out the back door and into a waiting black Mercedes Benz, driven by Henri Paul. Paul was the acting head of security at the Ritz and was technically off duty that night and had spent at least part of the evening drinking at the hotel bar. An inquest would later determine that in fact, Paul's blood alcohol level was three times over the legal limit. Also detected in his system were Prozac, as well as a drug sometimes used to combat alcohol withdrawal. As the couple sped off, the photographers out front got tipped off about the escape, quickly catching up on their motorcycles. With the paparazzi in pursuit, the Mercedes darted in and out of traffic and then raced into the Pont Delma tunnel clipped the back of a white Fiat Uno and slammed into a pillar at about 110 kilometers per hour. Doty and the driver died at the scene. Diana and bodyguard Trevor Reese Jones were seriously hurt. Diana with massive internal injuries. The crash site was chaos. Photographers arrived within a minute. And a doctor who happened to be driving through the tunnel at the same time of the collision was the first emergency personnel to arrive. Dr. Frederic Mallet tended to Diana with the few supplies he had in his car before the ambulances arrived. And Dr. Malay would later testify that during that time, the paparazzi took photos of Diana and the others, although those photos were never published. The doctor has also said Diana was slipping in and out of consciousness and at one point woke up and said she was in pain. A police officer who attended the scene later told the independent newspaper that Diana's last words were, my God, what's happened? Once at the hospital, doctors operated on Diana for two hours but could not save the princess. She died at 4.53 AM. Diana was 36 years old. In 2019, Dr. Richard Shepherd, Britain's top forensic pathologist, concluded that Diana died of a tiny, badly placed tear in the vein of her lung. He said the injury is so rare that in his entire career, he has not seen another. Shepard believes Diana's death could have been prevented by one small change, a seatbelt. He wrote, had she been restrained, she would probably have appeared in public two days later with a black eye perhaps a bit breathless from the fractured ribs and with a broken arm in a sling. The only survivor of the crash was bodyguard Trevor Reese Jones. A few hours later, as news spread around the world about Diana's death, her brother, the Earl Spencer, read a scathing, prepared statement. This is
1: not a time for recriminations, but for sadness. However, I would say that I always believed the press would kill her in the end. But not even I could imagine that they would take such a direct hand in her death as seems to be the case. It would appear that every proprietor and editor of every publication that has paid for intrusive and exploitative photographs of her, encouraging greedy and ruthless individuals to risk everything in pursuit of Diana's image has blood on his hands today.
0: Over the coming days, others weighed in on the causes of Diana's death, including Hollywood stars, George Clooney unloaded on the mainstream media by accusing them of blurring the distinction between themselves and sensational tabloids.
2: Legitimate news sources like the LA Times and Network News should draw a clear line in the sand. Do not purchase your news. Do not use tabloids as a source. You define the difference between tabloid and legitimate news. Do your job, inform responsibly.
0: In an appearance on CNN, Tom Cruise said he and his wife at the time, Nicole Kidman, had previously been harassed by paparazzi in that very tunnel where Diana died, adding that they were devastated by the news and furious at celebrity photographers. Cruz said, you don't know what it's like being chased by them. It is harassment under the guise of, you know, we're the press, we're entitled. When people are having a private moment, they should be allowed to have a private moment. In the 90s, the paparazzi in the United States was also a going concern, thanks to the rise of tabloid TV shows like A Current Affair and Hard Copy. Something we touched on briefly in an earlier episode about John F. Kennedy Jr., he and his wife, Caroline Bissett Kennedy, were pursued relentlessly by photographers. And so was John Jr.'s mother, Jackie Kennedy Onassis. Mark Karloff says there's a respectful way to photograph celebrities without violating their privacy, which a lot of photographers abide by.
2: But then there's the other guys in the in the business like we re- refer to as the savages, which are the guys that are pretty much in your face, flashes on the cameras, jumping out of cars. Um, asking stupid questions of the celebrities and, and trying to trying to annoy them. Speeding, running through red lights, following, you know, all day long, um, harassing, saying harassing things, stuff like that to get rises out of people or, um, you know, stuff like that, multiple cars, multiple photographers following people.
0: Meanwhile, Diana's funeral was held on September 6th, 1997. And like her wedding, it was watched by people around the world. Two and a half billion television viewers tuned in, and another million people lined the streets of London to watch the funeral procession. One of the most striking images from the day was young Harry and William, just 12 and 15, walking behind their mother's coffin as it traveled from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Cathedral. Cameras continued to roll inside the cathedral as Diana's brother, the Earl Spencer, performed the eulogy.
1: Diana was the very essence of compassion, of duty, of style, of beauty. All over the world, she was a symbol of selfless humanity.
0: Spencer again took aim at the media, saying that Diana talked endlessly of getting away from England because of the treatment she received from the tabloid newspapers.
1: I don't think she ever understood why her genuinely good intentions were sneered at by the media, why there appeared to be a permanent quest on their behalf to bring her down. It is baffling. My own and only explanation is that genuine goodness is threatening to those at the opposite end of the moral spectrum.
0: The Earl Spencer said the irony of Diana's life was that she had been named after the goddess of hunting, but she herself was one of the most hunted individuals in society. Singer Elton John, a friend of Diana's, performed a version of his 1973 song, Candle in the Wind, at the funeral. The song was originally written about Marilyn Monroe, who was also hounded by the media. But John changed the lyrics slightly for Diana's funeral. Instead of Goodbye, Norma Jean, which was Marilyn Monroe's real name, he sang Goodbye to England's Rose.
1: And it seems to me you lived your life like a candle in the wind, never fading with the sunset when the rain set in. This
0: version of Candle in the the Wind wind, remains the best-selling chart single of all time. And to this day, John has never performed the revised song again. He said he will only do so if her sons, Prince William and Prince Harry, ask. In the days following Diana's death, French police charged nine photographers and one motorcycle driver who chased her car that night with manslaughter. But those charges were eventually thrown out when the investigating magistrates concluded that the accident was the fault of the drunken driver, Henri Paul, and not the paparazzi. But Mark Karloff believes the paparazzi did play a role in the crash.
2: I like to refer to this uh, cause and effect. If you weren't there chasing her, they wouldn't have been speeding. Yes, there are other elements to this story, but if you were not chasing her... I mean, what what kind of picture were you really trying to get? You couldn't get that picture tomorrow. You couldn't get it the next day. You couldn't get it the next day. You know, there are more pictures to get. Chasing her down caused them to run. And then it ended the way it ended.
0: After the French photographers were cleared of manslaughter, officials pursued charges against three cameramen who took pictures of the couple inside the car following the crash. They were convicted of invasion of privacy and fined just one euro each. In 2007, 10 years after Diana's death, a long-awaited inquest into the crash finally opened in Britain. Following six months of testimony, a jury ruled Diana was unlawfully killed by the negligent driving of both her chauffeur and the paparazzi. They also noted that alcohol and non-use of seatbelts contributed to the deaths. The findings were a disappointment to Dodi's father, Mohammed Al-Fayed, who has long alleged that the couple was killed by British Secret Service agents on orders from Prince Philip, who didn't want Diana to marry a Muslim. But the judge overseeing the inquest told jurors to dismiss any conspiracy theories promoted by Al-Fayed, declaring them to be without substance. An earlier investigation by British police had also ruled out that the couple was murdered. Following Diana's death in 1997, the public mood turned against the paparazzi and the media. Freelance photographers who made their living snapping pictures of the royals and other celebrities were now considered the lowest of the low. An opinion that Mark Karloff says continues to this day, especially when it comes to older people who still associate the paparazzi with Diana's death. Mark says he's grown used to people calling him out for what he does.
2: You love us when you're out there looking at the tabloids or, uh, you know, looking online to see the latest celebrity, but, uh, but you see us in the street and we're taking pictures of a celebrity. For some reason, you hate us.
0: <laughs> in response to the backlash after Diana's death, the British tabloid newspaper, The Daily Mail, pledged to ban paparazzi photos from its pages, a promise that was ultimately not kept. The UK's Press Complaints Commission, which was later replaced by the Independent Press Standards Organization, did beef up its editor's code of practice to create what it called the toughest set of press regulations anywhere in Europe. As of January, 1998, the use of long lens photography to take pictures of people in private places without their consent was deemed unacceptable. And a clause was added to the editor's code of practice, which stated, One, journalists must not engage in intimidation, harassment, or persistent pursuit. And two, they must not persist in questioning, telephoning, pursuing, or photographing individuals once asked to desist, nor remain on their property when asked to leave and must not follow them. If requested, they must also identify themselves. Even before Diana died, there was a gentleman's agreement between Fleet Street and Buckingham Palace not to photograph Princess William and Harry at school. And after her death, photographers didn't dare break that agreement. As a result, if you look back now, there are very few unofficial photographs of William and Harry from their teenage years, but that would change once they turned 18 media attention towards the princes became frenzied again, reaching a hysterical climax when William began dating Kate Middleton in 2003. Once again, clandestine photos of the royals in private places began to make front pages around the world. There seemed to be tons of hairy and embarrassing situations. At a friend's costume party dressed as a Nazi in Las Vegas, playing strip billiards with six young women, and fighting with photographers outside a London nightclub. But this time, as media attention towards the younger royals heated up, the palace upped its game in the fight for the right to privacy. In 2009, senior aides to the royals told the press that the family would no longer tolerate photographers using telephoto lenses to capture pictures of them in private situations. And they warned that the royals would be prepared to take legal action. After that, it wasn't long before a photo agency was sued by the royals over photos it published of Kate playing tennis. And a French magazine was fined for printing topless photos of her. For the past decade, the royals have annually issued an anti-harassment notice to the press and media photographers reminding them of their right to privacy. A matter that became increasingly relevant when Harry began dating Meghan Markle and the UK press went totally bonkers over the US actress. Since the couple got married, they've not been shy about taking legal action when they feel their privacy has been violated. For example, in a recent case, a paparazzi agency agreed to never photograph the Sussexes again after they unlawfully invaded their privacy by taking photos of Megan and baby Archie when they were walking in a park on Vancouver Island. Prince Harry has said he will do everything in his power to protect his family and he will not be bullied into playing a game that killed his mom. But now that Harry and Meghan are living in Los Angeles, they may have walked into the dragon's den when it comes to invasive media. Because of the rules that were put in place in Britain following Diana's death, Mark Karloff says things are actually much worse in the U.S.
2: They have a lot of laws over there. There's a lot of... um You know, there's a a lot more security and um, just a different different style of of working. A little more discreet. You have to be a little more discreet over there and follow a lot of guidelines. When over here, it's pretty much a free-for-all.
0: California does have anti-paparazzi laws, which were passed in 1998 in response to Diana's death. But they only apply to photographers who trespass on private property and do little to protect celebrities who are in public spaces. And since it's up to the person being photographed to take action, some photographers are willing to take the gamble, pushing the boundaries as far as they can. What's probably had the biggest impact on paparazzi is the advent of social media. Celebrities can now curate their own photos, satisfying the public's desire to learn more about their private lives, making the candid paparazzi photo almost irrelevant. Unless, of course, it's Ben Affleck eating fast food in the back of his ex-wife's car on the way to rehab. Sadly, I think there will always be a market for that. Thanks for listening to this rebroadcast of History of the 90s. It was written and produced by me, Kathy Kinzora. Our producer is Dila Velazquez, and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Thanks also to Mark Karloff. He is honestly one of the good guys. The paparazzi are not all bad. And if you don't believe me, you can check out his podcast. It's called The Paparazzi Podcast and is co-hosted by Mark and his colleague Jedi. I'll put a link in the show notes. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. In the meantime, you can find the show on Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History and Instagram at That 90s Podcast. Also, happy to hear from you by email if you have any show suggestions or other comments. The email for the show is 90s at CuriousCast.ca. And finally, if you want more 90s, head over to Patreon. For the cost of a coffee, you can get access to uncut interviews and the occasional mini episode. Check it out at www.patreon.com slash history of the 90s. And see you next time for more History of the 90s.